I am here with Jaron Lanier. Jaron, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, again, thank you for your patience in uh, overcoming a surprising number of technical ordeals to, to get this conversation happening. This is just ironic because you are among the more technical guests, and yet we collectively have some bad technical karma. Hopefully, we've purged that problem and, and uh, we can move yeah, forward. Yeah, I've been meaning to talk to you about your irrational belief in karma. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't know where this comes from, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't think there is really such a thing in our world. Although, in my old startup, my, the engineers accused me of having some weird psychic field that caused demos to crash, especially on important occasions. Well, I believe them. Your, your <laughs> reputation precedes you. Yeah, well. Okay, well, let's let's jump in because I know your time is short and precious and we have around an hour here but and a, a lot to talk about, so I just want to plow on. But before we start, can you just describe what you do? How do you, how do you summarize your career at this point for people who are unfamiliar with you? Oh, I make no attempt to do that, and nor do I have any motivation to, except when somebody like you asks mm. me. But uh, I've done a few things. I'm a computer scientist. Uh, I started the field of virtual reality approximately after the founder of computer graphics really started it, which who was Ivan Sutherland. But I named virtual reality, and I had the first startup and prototype a lot of the apps and made the first uh, commercial gloves and headsets and so on. Mm. Um, I was chief scientist of the uh, of Internet 2, uh, the academic consortium that scaled the Internet in the 90s. Uh, I've done video games, lots of other tech stuff. I've been working with Microsoft a lot lately. I've done a bunch of startups as well, uh, including the, the one that became Google's first machine vision. Um, and I am also a musician, and I played with all kinds of people like uh, Philip Glass and George Clinton, all kinds of people. And I write books, which is yeah. the immediate reason why I go on podcasts like this. And the most recent book, which I'm sure the publisher would want me to mention right away, is called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Yes. Yeah. And I am a huge fan of your books. And, uh, you know, ironically, you just mentioned everything you do for which you are well known that has virtually nothing to do with what we're going to talk about, because I have found this side hustle of yours especially valuable, which is writing books and thinking all too presciently about the problems with our digital economy and social media and what the internet is doing to us. The book you just mentioned is your most recent, uh, which we'll talk about, but you have two prior books that are relevant here, You Are Not a Gadget and Who Owns the Future. There's just so many issues that intersect here. So I just want to kind of summarize for a minute or two my interest in this and then, mm -hmm. then set you off. <laughs> it seems like there are three areas that we'll talk about, and it's hard to know where to start here. But the first is is economics, and, and there are questions about how we create a world where good and necessary work gets incentivized and supported, and how we can have a large middle class, for instance, in the presence of increasing automation and AI. Then there's politics, where we, we need to think about the influence of the internet and social media on our ability to, to make sense to one another and even just understand the behavior of other people. And this is so there's just a kind of fundamental issue of human cooperation that's getting, in some ways, much harder based on our technology. And then there's this third piece, which is personal psychology, for lack of a better word, which is just how is this technology affecting each of us directly? And so among the 10 reasons you give for deleting one social media, one is that social media is turning everyone into an asshole. And I can 
I can say that I've personally run that experiment and, and it works. I, I have been turned into an asshole on Twitter. So this is just an incredibly important topic. And, and I think perhaps we should start with the economic piece because I guess one more thing by way of preamble is that many of the worst decisions we've made here, and this is something you point out in your books in creating this technology, are not on their face bad decisions. I mean, they, they're certainly not sinister decisions. And so, and to start talking about economics here, one of the first decisions we've made is around this notion that, that information should be free. And that just seems like a, a, a very generous and, and idealistic way to start. It just seems quite noble. So perhaps we can start here with 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 the digital economy, what what could possibly be wrong with information being free? Right. Well, this idea that information should be free uh, was held in the <laughs> in the most profound and intense way. It was something that was believed so intensely during a period starting in the eighties, and in some ways, it still holds for a lot of people. And to defy that was very, very difficult. It was painful for my friends who couldn't believe that I was defying it. It was painful for me. I did lose friends over it. And on its face, it sounds very generous and fair and proper and freeing, but there are, there are um, problems with it that are so deep as to, I think, uh, threaten the survival of our species. It's actually a very, very, very serious mistake. So the, the mistakes happen on a couple of levels here. I would say the first one uh, has to do with this idea that information is totally weightless and intrinsically something that's free in an infinite supply. And that's not true because information only exists to the degree that people can perceive it and process it and understand it. It ultimately only has a meaning when it grounds out as human experience. Uh, the slogan I used to have back in the 80s when we were first debating these things is that information is alienated experience, uh, meaning information is similar to stored energy that can be released. You put energy into a battery, then you can release it, or you lift up a weight, and then you let go of the weight, and it goes back down, and you've released the energy that was stored. And in the same way... Um, Information ultimately only has meaning as experience uh, at some point in the future. And the problem with experience, or maybe the benefit of experience, is that it's, it's um, only a finite potential. You can't experience everything. And so therefore, if you make the mistake of assuming that information is free, you'll have more information than you can experience. And what you do is you make yourself vulnerable to uh, what we could call a denial of service attack in other contexts. So a denial of service attack means that malicious people um, send so many requests to a website that it's effectively knocked out off the web. You can't reach it anymore. And every website that you use reliably actually has to go through this elaborate structure of other resources created by companies like Akamai that defend it from uh, denial of service attacks, which are just infinitely easy to do. But in the same way, when you have uh, services like Twitter or Facebook where anybody can post anything without any cost to themselves and there's no postage on email uh, and everything can just be totally filled up with spam and malicious bots and crap to the point where reality um, and everything good about the world gets squeezed out and you end up amplifying the worst impulses of people. And so it's, it's created this world of darkness and falsity 
it's uh, reverse the enlightenment. You know, it's like you can't, there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's no such thing as free information. There's no such thing as infinite attention. There has to be some way that um, seriousness comes into play if you want to have any sense of reality or quality or truth or decency. And uh, unfortunately, we, we, we haven't created a world in which that's so. But then there's a flip side to it, which is equally important, which is uh, we've created this world in which we're talking about technology often as something that's, if not opposed to humanity, opposed to most of humanity. So uh, there's a lot of talk, and a lot of this comes from really good technologists. So it's not from like malicious outsiders who are trying to screw us up. It's our own fault where we'll say, well, a lot of the jobs will go away because of our artificial intelligence and our robots. And that might either be some extreme case where a super intelligent AI takes over the world and disposes of humanity, or it might just be that only the most elite, smart, techie people are still needed and everybody else becomes this burden on the state and they have to go on some kind of basic income. And it's it's just a depressing, it's like, it's like everybody's going to become this useless burden. And so even if that means, oh, we'll all get basic income, we won't have to work for a living. There's also something fundamentally undignified, like you won't be needed. And any situation like that, it's just bound to be a political disaster or an economic disaster on many levels we can go into if it isn't obvious. But the thing to see is that this economic hole that we seem to be driving ourselves into is one and the same as the information wants to be free. Because the thing is, ultimately, all these AIs and robots and all this stuff, they run on information that at the end of the day has to come from people. and each instance is a little different, but for a lot of them, um, there's input from a lot of people. And I can give you some examples. So if we say that information is free, then we're saying uh, we're, in the information age, everybody's worthless because what they can contribute is information. <laughs> um, the example I like to use as just an entry point to this idea is uh, the people who translate between languages. So they've seen their careers um, be decimated. They're a tenth of what they were in the same way that recording musicians and, um, oh, you know, uh, investigative journalists and many other classes of, of uh, people who have an information product, they, they've all been kind of reduced under this weird regime we've created. But the thing is, in order to run the, uh, the so-called AI translators uh, that places like Bing and Google offer, we have to scrape tens of millions of examples from real-life people translating things every single day in order to keep up with slang and public events, language is alive. The world is alive. You can't just stuff a language translator once. You have to keep on refilling it. And so we're totally reliant on the very people that we're putting out of work. So it's fundamentally like a form of theft through dishonesty. Um, I hope that should become clear. Yeah, well, I guess one question there is that I, I can see how it's true in the case of translation, but it seems to me nowhere written into the book of nature that it should be true in every case. So you, I think we could imagine some significant percentage of, of work that will get, get automated and there won't, it won't require this continuous drip of, of yet more human-generated information. Well, what I'd say to that is that I think anytime somebody considers what they want from an advanced economy or an, an economy in a situation where technology is getting better and better is they should want more and more of the economy to essentially be about subjective value, about things like entertainment and cosmetics and sports and <laughs> lifestyles and design and all that. 
like that's what we should want because that's a signal that we're creating technologies in an economy that's really serving us, right? Yeah. And so uh, I would suspect, whether you want to call it AI or not, that some kind of growing core of functionality will probably require less and less continuous input from people because it it ultimately is um, composed of problems that can be solved approximately at least uh, once, and then you can keep on using the solution for a long time. But the world of subjective value should be in constant creative churn and evolution. And so to me, uh, it it might very well be the case that you don't need to rescan the roads all the time to have uh, self-driving vehicles, let's say. You still have to do it because there'll be potholes or fallen trees or whatever, but you don't have to do it constantly. But you sh- but most of the economy should be about these subjective things, about style and arts and uh, fashion and joy and connection and all that. And that's exactly the stuff we th- we've thrown the most into the free bin, where you're supposed to do all that stuff for free by uploading YouTubes for free to YouTube and posting on Facebook for free and so forth. And uh, so, and to me, the AI case and the creative case are not different. It's just data coming from people. I think the AI thing is just a fancy way of talking about information that confuses and muddies the issue. Mm-hmm. So, um, so this concern that AI will get really good simply doesn't concern me because what the economy should be about is precisely more and more subjective value, which can only come by definition from people. That's what it means. Right. Okay. So, so we've, we've hit the ground running here. I want to back up for a second and try to perform a, an exorcism on, on some bad intuitions here, because you know, I think people come into this, we've, we've trained ourselves to expect much of our digital content to be free and free forever. And it now seems just the normal state of the world. And of course, podcasts and blogs and journalism and ultimately music should be free. Or if it's not free, it should be subsidized by ads. And I think there's this, this sense that the TV and radio were free, so there's this this precedent. And advertising has its excesses, but I think people feel, well, what, what's you know, what's wrong with ads? Some ads are kind of cool looking and amusing and stylish. So, and we've lived with them for forever. And then there's these other elements, like you know, having a personalized news feed. What's what's wrong with that? Why can't Facebook just give me what I want? And I think it it might be useful to to focus the conversation here on a couple of of case studies that that you deal with in in your various books. And one I think that will be familiar to people is the music industry and what happened to the the really the the economic basis of of creating and and selling music. Perhaps let's start there. I mean, because because there's it was one thing that I I remember vividly when music became digitized is that it, it actually wasn't clear ethically to me and to you know millions of other people that copying an mp3 file was stealing in any sense i mean that piracy seemed benign and to i think a whole generation of people still seems benign because you're you're not depriving anyone of the material you're copying you're not you're you're, you're copying an mp3 file or any other digital product doesn't deprive anyone else of that information. And yet the effect of this has been to shrink an economy that at one point sustained, you know, a, a very valuable form of creative expression and you know, you know, now has been in free fall for, for quite some time. 
So let's just let's talk to me about what happened to to music. Sure. Well, uh, there's a couple things I'd like to say. If I could, um, we've had an interesting experiment performed, but not in music, but instead in uh, TV. Sure. Um, and, and so I'd just like to mention that first before coming back to music. Is that okay? Yeah, that's great. All right. So in the case of TV, during the same era in which it was, uh, there was this kind of craze for making music free, which was kind of 90s into the first decade of the century, um, uh, there was also a feeling that that should happen with TV and that in the future, TVs and movies would be created by a process that was reminiscent of the Wikipedia, where it'd just be a bunch of volunteers who would self-organize and do it for free and it would, everything would be better. And a lot of people tried to do that. My friend Will Wright, who made The Sims, had a company like that, and there were dozens of others. There, was like, there were a lot of attempts. And see, that at the same time, uh, there were companies like Netflix saying, no, 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 that's not the right thing. What the internet allows us to do is have a direct billing relationship with people. And if we make the experience good and clean and smooth enough for them, they won't mind paying. And I just think there's no question that Netflix won that argument. I mean, <laughs> that was a fair test. That was a fair showdown between two different philosophies. And there's just no question that the paid philosophy won. And in particular, people frequently uh, refer to this era in which we're paying for TV and, and we, see, we don't see advertisements on HBO or Netflix. That might be changing now. But this, this direct pay model instead of the old ad model or the copy it model, they're calling it peak TV. You've, yeah. Everybody's heard that phrase. Whether it is or not, of course, is a matter of opinion. Um, I'm personally not into a lot of the shows that have captured the imagination of so many like Game of Thrones, but it seems to be working, you know. So we have a very clear thing. And, and so, you know, um, what I'd say about this question of if you copy something, the original is still there. If you copy information, um, I just have to say that what we decide is worth paying for is always something of an, I won't say an arbitrary, but it, there's always a cultural element. There's an element of values into how we decide to do this. Um, we decide not to pay for what we think of as women's work. We decide. Um, for a long time, we decided the air was free, so you just breathe it and the plants make more air. But then we realized, no, it's not. And we have carbon credits. We realized we have to preserve our air and everybody has to pay for it, ultimately, if we're going to survive. It's a matter of how we express our values, where we perceive our self-interest, how we, how we see a path to a decent society. Ultimately, the decision of how you value things and what's worth spending money on is not rational. Like at, For all of the books you can read about economics with all the fancy diagrams and equations, at the end of the day, a lot of it is really based on values and cultural expression. And so there isn't a way to absolutely justify some of these decisions, but that's always been true. Well, in, in some ways, it, it can be made rational in that you can trace the negative effects of bad incentives or, in, in this case, you know, I mean, if, if you're going to pirate every CD that gets produced in the year whatever it was, 1998, then that's going to have a very predictable effect on the the economics of producing music, and then musicians will have to tour, right? And but you know, not everyone wants to tour or can tour. And then if you do it to writers, if you pirate books, well, you know, writers for the most part can't even tour, right? I mean, they're not musicians. Only some of them can have careers giving lectures. So it's 
what you do in in your books is is offer a very rational case for why these these incentives we've created or the, or these these new norms around treating information as free have been really ruinous to certain sectors of of the economy. Well, you know, it's um it's a strange thing like you uh <laughs> these kind of uh, clouds of negative assumptions can overtake a society. So currently, we assume that there's no way to have a college education that won't be infinitely expensive, that will put you in debt forever. We assume there's that, that there are these horrible things that are just indelible. And there's an assumption that if you're a musician, it's inconceivable there could be an economy to support you. So you better have rich parents, you know, and that, that's approximately what's going on now for the most part in the average case. Um, what I try to tell younger musicians is that this is not really so. In the 90s, for a while, I made my living as a recording musician. And leaving aside performances just from the recording business, um, I could sell like 30,000 records. I was kind of a minor artist, I would say, in the kind of avant-garde classical crossover world. And I'd get $100,000 advance per record, and uh, the big label that had signed me would earn it back. Um, and uh, that was cool, you know, and we got to record in a nice studio and all these things. It was it was a very cool time. I wish younger musicians could experience that. It was just extraordinary. And everybody was basically happy. I mean, it was working. Right. But so my understanding here with music is that you had major bands who would, who I think got something like 90% of their revenue from selling their music see that revenue shrink to whatever, 30%, and then touring had to make up the difference. And so that it created a whole new business model for music. But that that works in the case of you know many musicians. I don't know, you know what percentage, but it doesn't work for many journalists, right? Or or no. many authors. And even in the case of musicians, it's been heartbreaking. I mean, um when this music wants to be free thing started happening we just started having weekly fundraisers for people like famous musicians who'd gotten sick in old age and had like no support anymore. And it was just so tragic. Uh, recently, my very dear buddy friend for many, many years, John Perry Barlow passed away and he had been a songwriter for the Grateful Dead, one of the most successful bands, which had actually pioneered a lot of this idea by encouraging tapers at their concerts from a very pure feeling, from a very generous feeling. But then, you know, at the end, even though he'd penned, you know, these songs and these huge selling records, he just basically didn't have income, you know? And I, it just pissed me off so much. It's just so unfair. It's like um, what I call it is singing for your supper for every single meal. You never get to build up any life. You know, you can't build up any reserve so that you can have a sick day or grow old or have a kid who needs to go to college. You know, it's, it's a, Everybody goes into this gig economy where you're basically this disposable element in somebody else's fortune, and that's what that's what making music free actually did. That's that's a very important distinction because you, to take yeah. the case of music, so it may seem like a a distinction without a difference for people because if I tell you that a you know a band like whatever or Radiohead used to make all of their money selling music, but now they have to tour. But the crucial difference there is if you're making your money selling your your intellectual property well then then that is money that you can continue to make even when you stop working whereas if you're making your money touring 
you know, that there's a linear relationship between, you know, every gig and every dollar. And once you stop touring, you stop making money. And that's that looks very different in your old age as a rock star. Yeah, yeah. There have been so many tragic situations. And of course, if you're young, what you think about is it's in my interest to not have to pay for this file, you know. Right. But then you will not stay young forever, no matter what weird rhetoric comes out of Google spinoffs, you know. You will also grow old. You will also have a biological body and you will have needs and you will not always have perfect days. And this whole idea of intellectual property, kind of like a lot of things in our society, it you can think of it as something that only benefits elites, but actually it was fought for by uh, unions trying to support people who were not elites at all. The Musicians Union battled long and hard to get these rights to create dignity for people who produced information in their lives. And to have it lost by people who thought they were doing the right thing is just one of the great tragedies of our era. Yeah, yeah, and, and there are so many elements here. But so, for instance, you know, as a as a writer of books, I, I know you have experienced this as well. You you find yourself continually in competition with free versions of yourself. So, you know, if you give a TED talk, you know, rather often you give the talk. Because you, know, you you want to give the talk, but also because you're a writer of books, and this is you know you're, this is a great way to get word of your work out. But the truth is that in you know, more and more in the in the current era, where everyone feels starved for time and attention, and it's becoming harder and harder to even commit to reading a book, you are actually your TED talk is going to satisfy some significant number of people that they understand your thesis well enough that they don't even have to read your book. The business model of publishing is in tension with all of these these opportunities to get the word out about a book now in, in digital form. And a podcast like this is, you know, another case in point. And to that end, I sh it would be only decent of me to assure people that we will in no way exhaust what is of interest in your books by having this conversation. If I may, there's one of my books you haven't mentioned, which is called Dawn of the New Everything, which is uh, a, a memoir and an introduction to virtual reality and possibly my best book, uh, but <laughs> yeah. also the, less, the least known one because it's, uh, it's hard to read. It's big, but it's fun. I hope somebody listening will think to read it. I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, and unfortunately, that is the one I have not read, but I will look forward to that. So let, let's just bring this, the concept of or the role of ads back in here. So the, most people have decided that in the face of this, the, the way to monetize work and inspire good work is to build an ad economy. And this answers the need to have information be free to all of the, the young people who, who want to get it that way. And, and you know, now we, we who used to be young still want to get it that way. And this is something that, you know, many of us have, are fighting against who have been paying attention to the consequence of, of relying on ads. And, you know, I've decided that I, that I can't credibly read ads on this podcast. I know that you're you're more sanguine about the state of podcasting than most forms of media at the moment. And I should say is that for you know many podcasters, because I've taken a position against ads on my own podcast, many people come to me wanting to do the same. And the truth is, I don't actually even know what to tell other podcasters at this point because. I think I'm an outlier in this space where it, it works for me. I found an audience who, and, and some percentage of, of the audience will support this work. But 
it seems to me by no means straightforward to say that that any podcaster who wants to will will find an audience to support their work and i think in the given the current expectations i think anyone who does decide to to forego ads will be paying a an economic price for doing that at, at, with with whatever audience at whatever scale given given the expectation that that podcasts should be free so it's kind of hard to to advise people even when i'm successfully implementing an ad-free model here. Well, I, I need to correct you about something. Um, my objection is not to advertising, but to continuous behavior modification by algorithm, which right. is really a very different thing. So, Well, well it, overlaps, it overlaps in one case in that, well, I, so I'm, I'm worried as a podcaster about the, the behavior modification or, or the perceived behavior modification that can happen to me as a as a just a broker of information i i don't you know it's like a credibility concern i, I just can't you know given what i'm trying trying to do here i don't feel that i can personally shill for any products but I, I think other podcasters can i think it's completely convergent with the brand of other podcasters to say oh listen here's the here's the greatest you know t-shirt i've ever found you know you're you know you're going to want this t-shirt and that that works for people who <laughs> i know i've heard some really I uh, listening to some of the podcasters have to read their ads when it's clearly bizarre. It's it's actually kind of entertaining. But the thing is, as long as every listener hears the same ad, right, and everybody can understand what's going on, that's okay. I mean, the reason podcasting is still, in my view, an unmolested, authentic medium is that there aren't algorithms calculating. Um, what somebody hears on a podcast it's still it's it's crafted by you and if it includes ads people can tell it includes ads it isn't there isn't some meta podcast that's taking snippets and creating a feed for people there isn't some algorithm that's in at least so far that is like uh changing what you say with uh you know uh, audio signal processing technology to suit the needs of somebody who's paying from the side some advertiser uh, there's not a calculation of a feed designed by behaviorist theorists to change people. And as long as it's just a crafted thing, even if it, in, if it includes commercial communication, I don't think it destroys society. I think um, it does start to destroy society when everything becomes really manipulative and creepy in a way that people can't possibly follow or understand. Then it starts to undermine human dignity and self-determination. And that's exactly what's going on with social media companies and the way searches run and uh, the way uh, YouTube videos are selected for you and fed to you and m many other examples. And, and, and that's, that's where we really have the most serious problem. Yeah, so I, I, I want to get there because that really is the, the psychology and the politics. But I, I just have a few more things I want to cover in economics here because it, you, you touch on some things that uh, you know, many of us have noticed, but I think just didn't score as as problems in society so i mean there's, there's a kind of winner take all effect that we notice in in digital media where you know it it seems like people can can have we, we we're noticing people get real careers whether it's you know, their youtube stars or their podcasters or, or you know or, or just startups that you know replace you know, legacy media you have something like instagram replacing something like Kodak in, in, the, in our notion of what it is to be a, a business based on photography. But there's a shrinking 
of the economy. I mean, perhaps that's a comparison worth letting you make. I mean, com- compare Instagram and Kodak for us in terms of the number of people employed. I mean, I'm happy to. I, I just concerned that many of the examples we've been using are so antiquated that they'll have taken place well before some of your listeners will have been born. Kodak, but yeah. for those for those who don't know, there's or, or um, Instagram. Instagram, surely people still, still <laughs> Instagram remember. people know about, yeah. which is. Part of Facebook, for God's sakes. It's the same thing as Facebook. You can't tell me you don't have a Facebook account if you have an Instagram one. You do. But anyway, Rochester, New York, way up there by the lake, um, used to be a center of buggy whip production, which is this example always used for the value of creative destruction and capitalism. Buggy whips were the whips used to get horses to move when before there was internal combustion and cars and trucks. And when the car came along, the buggy whip, industry went bust. And then Rochester became the center of photography. And these huge companies called Kodak and Polaroid were there, which used to be major, major American companies employing multitudes of people with wonderful research labs and incredible factories, which I'm old enough to have seen. And they sold film for your cameras and they sold the cameras and people would take pictures just like they do today. And they'd share the pictures and they'd make multiple prints and they'd mail them to each other. They could do all the same stuff. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not really all that different. Then Instagram comes along, founded uh, with 13 people, gets sold for a bunch of money to Facebook, and basically kind of wipes out uh, a lot of uh, camera culture um, in this way that concentrates all the wealth with just a tiny, tiny, tiny number of people. And there's something fundamentally confused about this, in my view, You can't just say all the money accrues to whoever has the biggest and most central computer because there's always going to be somebody with a big monopolistic monster computer. I call them siren servers in my books. Um, It's just it's called network effects. Uh, You can't have like three Facebooks of equal size that continue forever because people are going to want to connect with people on the same thing. And so gradually they'll just be one big thing. And so you'll end up with one monster social media thing and then a few niche ones that are a little different. And currently you have things like Twitter and Snap that that survive along with it. But for the most part, these things turn into monopolies. And if you say all the money goes to whoever happens to own the computer that wins the monopoly game in a network, then you just create the society of almost nobody benefiting at the end of the day when things get more and more computerized and things are more and more based on information technology, which is certainly what's going to happen. And that's no kind of society at all. That's just the undermining of everything. Uh, even for those who are, I mean, I'm on the good side of the equation. I'm a Silicon Valley guy. I've done great. I've had four successful startups and I, I'm not, you know, I don't have personal complaints per se, except that I want to live in a beautiful world. If I'm like rich in a world that my wealth is destroying, I've totally lost. It's totally self-undermining. And that's exactly what's going on. Well, yeah, so th- this has always confused me or, or worse, kind of horrified me with respect to people in you know your industry in Silicon Valley, who are who are as you say are on the winning side of this equation, who seem not to be at all concerned about wealth inequality. I mean, it's like it's like implicit in in how they're in what they're fighting for. I mean, I'm thinking now of people who opposed income tax in Washington. I think it was you know to help bail out failing schools or whatever it is. I believe it was a school based initiative. The presumption there is that you really have nothing to lose by wealth inequality increasing to some crazy asymptote. What is the end game there? You're, you're going to live in a compound ringed with razor wire 
and you know you'll need an armed guard to go everywhere and that's there's a kind of insular notion of wealth which <laughs> which it doesn't depend on having happy creative people out there on the street when you go out to get your coffee but I mean, clearly we're in this together on some basic level and it's a it's a very dark notion of success that doesn't recognize that well you know i do have friends in silicon valley who fit within the cliche that you've described. And I have had those conversations where, and it's happened repeatedly. Somebody will come up to me and say, Hey, you have to go in with us. We're all, we're getting this compound in New Zealand. And you know, when everything falls apart here, we're all going to go to New Zealand until the rockets work. And then we can all go to Mars and we'll upload ourselves to the big computer that's orbiting Mars or whatever the fantasy is. And I'll say, wait a second. If we can fuck up a big, pardon my language, oh, well, I don't know what your policy is on that, but You're free. if we can screw up a big country like the United States, what are we going to do to a little country like New Zealand? We're going to like totally trample it and make it, you know, turn to crap in three seconds. Like, like what the problem is us, you know, like we did this and I love, I mean, I have a beautiful house I love. I have a beautiful family. I love where I am, but I love the overall world even more. I love to be able to go out and meet new people and find new flavors and hear new music. And that external world has been contracting uh, due to this extreme inequality, like even in Berkeley, where I live, which is about as lefty a city as you can find. There's places you can't go anymore because there's just, you know, it's just there's so many people in such stress and there's so many people on the streets. And uh, it's one of the reasons I live here instead of Silicon Valley, because we're not quite as much of a bubble as it is across the bay. But I want my world back. I, I would happily pay more taxes to have this beautiful world become more open and friendly and healthy and safe and comfortable and friendly. I, I think it would be the bargain of the century, but you can't just do it through charity on your own. It has to be this giant coordinated thing, which is what we call taxation. Like we, we have to do more of that. I think it would be an incredible bargain. Um, if you go to a country with higher taxes that are spent just with without some horrible amount of corruption, but it just spent on the public good, even if it's not always perfect. I just find like my heart opens up and I can breathe easier because you can sort of go anywhere and things are okay. And you're not going into these areas of horrible decay and suffering. And it, it just makes your world better. I, I just can't understand why people don't leap at that bargain. It's such a better world. Yeah. People don't score it as a, a cost that they're paying not to be, you know, to, to worry about walking too far in one direction in a city because things become, you know, more dangerous or more squalid or more like, you know, or having to cross the street because, you know, there are 20 homeless people encamped on, on that part of the sidewalk. It just seems like there's no sense of agency. There's nothing that, that, that you feel you can personally do about it, even if you are generally philanthropic. I mean, giving some money to a, a homeless shelter doesn't really solve that particular problem. And and yet we have this this stigma associated around redistributing wealth, and there's a kind of consensus among techies, it seems, or certainly there's a kind of libertarian bias among techies that's, that suggests that having government do anything is the wrong approach, given how inefficient it's tended to be. So, Yeah, you know, one of the unwritten histories, I tried to cover a little bit of this in my book, Dawn of the New Everything, uh, but it needs really its own book is starting in the 80s, but especially in the 90s, there was a deliberate propaganda effort to spread libertarian ideas in Silicon Valley. There were all these like 
glossy libertarian magazines that suddenly showed up and speakers and stuff. And we only recently learned that a lot of this was kind of centrally coordinated and funded by people like the Koch brothers. But uh, the pitch back then was that, oh, it's these uh, fuddy-duddy liberals and leftists who don't want you to have fun. And they, they you know, they have all these women's libbers and everything. In this libertarian future, uh, there'll be free sex everywhere and we'll have prostitutes everywhere and we'll have uh, pot will be legalized and you'll be able to do all your drugs. And it, libertarian was, libertarianism was initially sold to Silicon Valley as this kind of hedonistic binge. That was the <laughs> original pitch. <laughs> right. And uh, it's, it's funny, uh, it's kind of shifted now to just kind of this pure greed and aggression, like you'll be existentially validated if you're the rich one at the end of the game. But it, it actually started out with, with this kind of other message that was designed to appeal to hippies. Hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, getting the government off your back. And yeah, I mean, the, the, war, the war on drugs has been such a spectacularly ugly failure that you can justify libertarianism for quite a while just focusing on that. No kidding. And yet the thing is that the so-called conservative libertarian people are essentially, at the end of the day, they always end up in bed with the, the, uh, the theocratic... Uh, sort of moralists because, um, you know, they're ultimately control freaks and they're also, they're ultimately trying to find some way to, you know, uh, be elite, you know, and it's, uh, <laughs> you can do that by connecting with the theocracy. It's a, it, it just happens again and again somehow. So let's pivot to the psychological and political aspects here because, and this, this will take us to social media. Now you are, if I'm not mistaken, not on any social media? Is that the case? Or are you, you're, you're on LinkedIn? No, I'm not on LinkedIn. Okay. There's fake versions of me on everything. And I have a professional connection to LinkedIn because I'm a scientist at Microsoft that owns it. But I wouldn't, I, I have no account on it or on anything else. So there, there's a real journal linear on Twitter. It's not me. I don't know who it is. Uh, I have nothing. Okay. So, so tell me about this decision to forego all social media. Uh, well, first of all, these people are not strangers to me. I know the people who run all the companies. <laughs> They're yeah. just other, you know, hacker bums. They're not, I, like, to me, it's it's sort of like if you came to me and said, hey, I'm starting a new car lot. You got to come get your new car from me. I would probably say, Sam, you know what? I'll be your friend, but I'm not necessarily getting my car from you. <laughs> and that's how I felt about these sites. I just, I just feel like they're a bunch of nonsense. I just, they just never appeal to me. And uh, I know they've become sort of so normalized that it seems like a thing not to be on them. But um, I got to point out, perhaps if I was on some of these services, I'd sell more books or be more famous. But truth is, I feel like I'm doing pretty well. You know, I'm 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 probably doing better than most people who are trying to be writers or speakers. And for me, it's it's not even my main gig, probably. And uh, I don't say that to brag. I'm just saying that maybe the whole thing is a scam. Maybe if you get off these things, you actually don't pay a price. Maybe you don't need them. I don't think I'm that exceptional. You know, maybe I'm a little exceptional in one way or another. It's been proposed to me, but I can't be that exceptional. And so I don't think to me, it's not like I've made any hard decision. I don't think there's any loss. I don't think there's any lost opportunity or lost option or lost connection. I think just get rid of them because they're stupid and then you're fine. It's interesting. It's there's a bit of a paradox here because, so you know, as, as someone who has spent a fair amount of time on Twitter and gotten hooked there and then noticed just all of the the negative effects of, of being hooked, I, I've dialed it back, you know, by 95%. So I mean, now I, I 
you know, I'm on for maybe five minutes a day, and I use it really just as a, a way of keeping up with news articles that people are recommending who, you know, the, who I have followed for that very purpose, or, you know, I, I'll announce the release of this podcast there, and then I'll close it down. But, and so moving from, from having spent a lot of time on Twitter into the, quote, real world again, there is a bit of a paradox here because in some ways the, the real world, the sense of being in the real world is a bit of an illusion because much of the, the reality of one's reputation and one's effects on others and the spread of one's ideas is online, right? It's not in the real world. You don't meet it walking down the street unless someone comes up and says, hey, I, you know, I love your book. But you, know, you, you and I, will, we're having this conversation. We'll release it as a podcast. And the conversation about it, the reaction to it, you know, if I stick my foot in my mouth now and say something that, that gets a, a negative reaction, all of that will be happening online and primarily on social media, and, and neither of us will be paying attention to it. But it doesn't mean it's not happening, and it, and it doesn't mean it doesn't matter to our reputations and, our, and whether people will collaborate with us in the future. So how do you think about this? I mean, m- much of what's happening to your reputation, you're not aware of by virtue of not being on social media. Well, I mean, the thing about it is uh, it's a lot of froth. It's like um, just this, this uh, churning foam. It's very possible that there might be things out there that had I known about them, I could have seized some opportunity or something. That's a bit of an unknown. What I see empirically from the many people who are on social media is not that. What I see instead is uh, a few happy stories of people who have fortuitous, fortuitous connections or like magical circumstance that happen on, uh, through these services. I think that those things are real and they do exist. But it, the more common thing is that people get into weird snits. They, get into, they, they bring out the worst in themselves and other people. And they turn into sort of these scatological hoodlums suddenly out of nowhere. <laughs> and that's what seems to actually happen more commonly. So I think, you know, statistically, I'm probably ahead. I'm probably doing better by not being on it. It's a bit of a, it's unfathomable because you can't know. I mean, I would say if, uh, oh, let's say if Elon Musk wasn't on Twitter, Tesla would be worth more money today than it is. You know, that's a much more typical story. And uh, so overall, I'd say my best guess is that I've benefited from not being on it. I mean, there's no way to know for sure in my case, but statistically, you know, I'm pretty confident that's the case. Honestly, it seems like a good bet from where I'm sitting now. Yeah. (laughs) But let's talk about some of these other effects on social media, because there's this, you know, politically and psychologically, the fact that we are, that people are getting so siloed into these echo chambers and seeing information that is, you know, algorithmically tailored to who they appear to be online or who they have been in the past, this has a several bizarre and unhappy consequences. In your most recent book, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts, you present this thought experiment, which is fairly arresting. It's, it's just that the, the Wikipedia analogy. I'm just imagine if Wikipedia showed different versions of every entry based on this secret profile that it has about you as a internet user. 
you know, so a pro-Trump person would get a totally different account of reality than a than an anti-Trump person. As an analogy, that seems insane. I mean, what, like, well, how could we live in a world where that would be happening? And yet, that's actually happening on social media in some basic sense, and it's in some sense even more widespread than if it were just happening on on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's exactly what's happening. And the thing is. Um... You can argue about whether I'm overstating the importance of social media and search and other online experiences to the world, but it has, I think, even the indirect versions of this, if you can create this kind of uh, siloed, uh, personalized, manipulative feed, it also then makes it more possible for the traditional outlets like the Fox Newses of the world to operate with a feeling of, of confirmation, of self-confirmation that what they're doing is okay, which I think would have been inconceivable before there was a background of social media to support them. And this is kind of important because of demographics. Um, One of the negative side effects of increasing the human lifespan is that there's more and more old people around who can be kind of more rigid and whatever. And so they tend to be on the older media like TV. And so in a way, it's the, the effect of social media craziness allowing TV to become more silent and crazy than it used to be um, is closer to the problem in the U.S. maybe even than the direct effects of social media. But at any rate, yeah, it's a we're in this we're we're in this bizarre situation where the only way that anybody can have an experience online on this beautiful internet that we worked so hard to build is when there's somebody to the side who wants to pay to manipulate them. That's like if there's if that doesn't exist, then nothing happens. And so we've created this whole society based on manipulation and stealth and craziness. And it's just made everything unmoored and paranoid and cranky and bizarre. It's, I think, especially consequentially now, it's made the behavior of other people, especially people with whom you disagree, very hard to interpret. I mean, so when I look at, I said this on a recent podcast, that when I look at diehard Trump supporters, they often appear genuinely crazy to me, or at least just in such bad faith that they're just not interacting with reality at all. And yet, I realize that I can't see what their information diet actually is. We're not seeing the same facts or or pseudo-facts, and it's made the behavior of of other people very difficult to interpret. It's a a really serious problem. because there, there, there's always been a fundamental divide in this country. We had a civil war, after all. And at times, the divide has been worse than it is today. But I don't think we've ever had quite the degree of just insanity and total disconnect and unmooring from, from facts, a disbelief in the real world, a, a lack of a sense of sharing anything. We had uh, disagreements in uh, a lot of things, in perception of what it meant to be of one race or another, for instance, or all sorts of things like that. But we didn't have, we still lived in the same world on some level, and we don't right now. And what effect has anonymity and comments had online? I mean, obviously, there's a case for an- anonymity in the sense that be, you know, there's the, the rare case where you, you're a whistleblower or you're, you're someone who needs to get the word out at, at zero cost yeah, to yourself. Um, yeah, there have been uh, lots of arguments, and I've been in a lot of them over the past quarter century about should you be anonymous or could you be a pseudonym or 
all of these different things. And I've ultimately decided that that particular argument is not where the action is. Um, I think there are cases where one might wish to be anonymous. Uh, I've seen a lot of kids use the construction of fake personas on on Instagram of creating finstas for themselves as actually, I think, a valuable exercise in growth and experimenting with identity. And I would hate to be like sort of the authority figure interrupting that. I think it's it's actually not a bad thing. Uh, so to me, what the problem is, is very specific. It's the it's the reliance on an economic model that incentivizes behaviorist manipulation. It's the calculated manipulation of people by third parties in a way that the people don't understand that uh, hooks them using psychological techniques and then tries to modify them using behaviorist techniques. And uh, that is the problem. That's the thing that should be rebelled against. And I think if we can be in a world where the economic incentives are no longer pushing for that to happen as much as possible, then there can be room for both true names and for um, for anonymity and pseudonymity. Uh, I think there can be a place for all those things. But the, the key thing we have to focus on is not that choice, but instead the pervasiveness of uh, manipulation. Uh, I, I, I So I, I, I really want to bow out of that argument about anonymity. I just mm-hmm. don't think it's the important argument. So what is the solution now? What, if, if you could reboot the internet, how would you do it? Uh, I would do a few things. The first thing I would do is um, encourage everybody involved to gradually bring money back into the world of information instead of expunging it. And uh, I think people should be able to earn a living when what they add to the network is valuable. I mean, right now we're creating the most valuable companies in history based on the information that people add to them. And meanwhile, we're creating more and more economic uh, uh, separation, more and more inequality. and Obviously, that can't go on forever, and the only way to correct it is to start paying the people who are adding the information, that's the value, and grow the pie. It doesn't mean that I think the big tech companies should be shut down or that they're evil. I actually kind of like a lot of them. Uh, It just means um, that we have to get back to a world where when people add value, they get paid for it, and it's honest. And of course, uh, that the, the flip side of that is just as Netflix proved, and for that matter, Apple with the App Store and many other examples. We have to encourage business models where people pay for what they want. So, you know, Google should Google should say, hey, search won't be free after 10 years. We're going to gradually start removing the free option. And what you'll get in exchange for that is uh, no more commercial bias and crap on our search results. Uh, this is just going to be serving you. You're going to pay for it. Facebook, same thing. We're going to we're, we're going to commit to not having any ads in 10 years. And uh, yeah, you'll start paying for it, but it'll be a great deal. It'll be affordable. You'll get you'll get peak Facebook and just like. You got peak TV from places mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, HBO and Netflix. We're going to give you peak social media where you can get better information and less crap. But um, the, the the other part of that is a little more complicated, uh, which is if you keep your eye out for a piece I have coming out with a colleague in the Harvard Business Review. Sorry to, I know it's a snobby thing, but anyway, no, you have it's to, good. it's a place to start. We're starting to, to scope out uh, how to do this in much more detail than before. And a lot of it has to do with creating in-between institutions um, that, and this is a little, this gets to be a whole thing, but right now, if there's nothing but a bunch of individuals and one giant tech platform like a Facebook or a Google, there's this bizarre situation where we're petitioning the central authority that we have no other power over that we didn't vote for to, to police our own speech and to police our own behavior. And it's just not tenable. We're demanding authoritarianism. Um, 
And the way around that is to create middle-sized organizations that are analogous to things like scientific journals or universities or trade unions or many other examples where you can, voluntar you can voluntarily join these things and they collectively bargain for you so you can get paid decently instead of having a giant race to the bottom. And they can become brands in themselves that enforce quality um, and become trustworthy. And so we have to create this, this, um, this sense of intermediate structures. And uh, remember, in the, in the past, before the internet, the place where um, excellence and compassion and trustworthiness came from was not the central government declaring it, but rather things like universities and scientific journals and high-quality um, news outlets developing a reputation and being selective. And But that was all voluntary, uh, voluntary so it wasn't authoritarian. And, and, and so if you have in-between-sized organizations, you can have all these effects that would be authoritarian if they were global and directed from the center. And all of those institutions are exactly the ones that were weakened and destroyed when Facebook said, we're going to move fast and break things. The stuff that was broken were all of those in-between organizations. And so we have to rebuild them in a new way in order to have this more humane and sustainable internet. And one part of your vision for success here and for a kind of humanistic information economy is that people would also get paid for their data. Whatever you value, i.e. data, that you add to the internet, that would be monetized in some way. Is that, do you see what, how that would be technically accomplished now, or is that await some sort of breakthrough? Yeah, I mean, I've worked on a few engineering models of it, and what I want to say is compared to what we're doing now, where you have this ecosystem of tens of thousands of little spying organizations that are trying to gather something about you and then sell it to somebody else, so that, <laughs> like this, the way we're doing things now is so complex and so convoluted and so bizarre that uh, this alternative I'm talking about would certainly be simpler and cheaper. What we're doing now, um, you know, uh, what your listeners might not realize is that they're paying on average, well, we don't know for sure, but our best estimate is something like $20 a month for connectivity purely to support spying on them that has nothing to do with what they actually directly perceive, just all this increased bandwidth for the spying empire. So it's a tremendous, it's a tremendous carbon footprint. It's a tremendous economic burden on everybody. It's tremendously complex and stupid. So we'd replace it with something much more straightforward and and simple, actually. And and the spying, perhaps we should take a minute or two to just detail some of the the aspects of the spying that people might not be aware of. Because I mean, I think I just learned that when you are performing a Google search. Google is not only tracking your completed searches, it's tracking your incompleted searches. If you type something into the search line and then think better of it and delete it, that initial typing, th those keystrokes got recorded as well and, and used, added to your profile. Are there other elements to this that you think people are, are unaware of? Oh, yeah. And it's changing all the time. So um, it's really different every week. Um, it's kind of, I've been present a couple of times when the various tech companies present themselves to the big uh, advertising conglomerates uh, in the annual negotiation of, of uh, fees, which is this amazing hidden ritual that I wish more people could see. And when you'll see the representatives from companies like Facebook and Google present themselves, they're so overreaching and creepy and they kind of, they probably are exaggerating but they'll talk about being able to just measure your soul i mean it'll just be like oh we're measuring the movement of your phone which can tell us how you're walking and then from that we can derive your mood and what whether you're having a period if you're a woman 
all kinds of stuff. We're following where you go. We're following all this stuff. We're following your voice tone when you do voice stuff. We're following your facial expression if we have a camera on you. We're measuring all this stuff. We know all these things about your health that you'll never know. We know all these things about your mood, about your mental state, about your state of attention. And um, we offer all of this amazing encyclopedia of spying on you uh, to you, our, cu- our true customer, if only you'll give us more money so you can have your piece of controlling the, the world. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's just such a weird thing. And um, now, in terms of the ground truth of how much is actually measured and how much of that measurement is actually valid and of the data that's valid, that's gathered, how much of it is used in any way that preserves any of that validity, that's extremely hard to determine. I don't think anybody really knows, and it's constantly in flux. But at any rate, the attitude is get as much as you can and be as creepy about it as possible when you're trying to earn money from your true customers. And the true customers, of course, are the ones they call the advertisers. I prefer to call them the manipulators. It's amazing that that is not obvious to, I would think, most people on social media, that when you're using Facebook, you're not actually Facebook's customer. The advertiser is, and you are the product. Yeah, some people object to that formula, formalism. I, 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 uh, I think it is helpful because it's mostly true. You are the product. It, it's not exactly true. What it is is, your demonstrated change in behavior from what it otherwise would have been as the product. Mm-hmm. So it's your loss of free will as the product uh, is a more precise way of putting it. Well, uh, Jaron, it's really been a pleasure to get you on the podcast. And uh, thank you for everything you're doing because you are a sanity check for many of us. So please keep it up. Well, th- that's, that's very kind of you to say, and I'm, I'm grateful that you had me on. 